Well, let's find our place together in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. I'm so thankful you're here with us tonight, not just to hear the word, but to uh, practice the word in uh, the Lord's Supper. And we will, uh, you'll see how the message kind of turns towards that. In the end, but we have been working through 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or sorry, 1 Corinthians as a book, and we'll be in chapter 3 this week, and uh, been enjoying this series. Hopefully you have as well, and we'll be uh, working through a message tonight that I've titled, well, I'll tell you the title in a second. If you've ever had kids, um, I'm starting to discover this as Natalie gets a little bit older, You've probably found yourself telling a kid or a grandkid or a nephew or a niece, maybe you could finish the phrase for me, act your age, my soul, if I had a dollar for every time. I've said that to my six-year-old. I don't know what it is. I've talked to some other parents about this. Kids have this thing where they talk baby talk. Like they know how to talk like a real human, but they somehow... I don't know if it's the TV shows that my kids watch. I don't know what it is, but they talk like children. It drives me insane. And every time I tell Natalie, act your age. We tell people that phrase in a lot of different settings, don't we? We tell them to act their age when they're talking like a baby. To act their age when maybe they're not getting along with their sibling. You should be the big brother, the big sister. Get along, act mature. Give up the toy for 10 seconds. It won't be the end of the world. Act your age. Maybe some of you who've had teenagers have found yourself saying that when they're goofing off in public. It's common. People, even adults really, don't act their physical age all the time. But our text tonight confronts us with the reality that sometimes Christians don't act their age. And that's why the title of tonight's sermon is Act Your Age. In the same way as the physical life, we're all in different stages of life spiritually. I think we all understand that. Some in this room have been saved just a little bit. Some have been with Christ for a lot of bits. But we all are in different phases of that. And we all have been in Christ for a different amount of time. But the reality is, and we'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that the amount of time someone has been with Christ does not always predict how mature they will act in Christ. And here's the real problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that sometimes people who think they're mature in Christ don't realize that they're actually very immature in Christ. And so God lovingly, through the pen of the Apostle Paul tonight, is going to remind the Corinthian church to act their age. What we see as Paul opens up chapter number three in verses one through four is that these Corinthians were not acting their age. Notice this in verse number one through four of chapter number three. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual. That term there, if you read it in its context, he's talking about mature spiritual people. I couldn't talk to you like you were mature spiritual people. I had to speak unto you as unto carnal. I couldn't address you as somebody who's been mature in Christ for several 
years as I'm writing this letter, I had to address you as a baby. Look at verse number one, as an infant in Christ. You know, there's a different way we talk to babies than there is to adults, right? Maybe this is why our kids talk baby talk. You know, I've never understood the baby talk thing where we go up to a child who will one day learn to speak grown English and we go, Gucci, Gucci, goo, as if that's the language they're trying to learn, right? But yet here's Paul, he's saying, and he's applying that concept. He's saying, some of y'all are so immature that I couldn't speak to you like I should have spoken to somebody who's been in Christ as long as you have. I had to speak to you as though I was speaking to a room full of people that are not dominated by the spirit, but are dominated by carnality, by the flesh, by the desires of our sinful hearts. Verse number two, he expands on that and says, I had to modify your diet because babies eat different food than adults. Some of us are familiar with these words in verse number two. He says, I fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now ye are able. For ye are yet carnal, he says in verse number three. Now, sometimes we hear this verse and it's, it, it's almost taken for granted that what Paul means here is that there are, there's a division of deep truths of God and elementary truths of God. The elementary truths of God are the milk and the deeper truths of God are the meat. And often we equate the milk with what? The gospel, right? I need to give you the gospel. Ironically, what probably might actually be the thing here is Paul's actually quoting them. They are criticizing Paul because they're saying, Paul, you're not giving us meat, you're giving us milk. Because what we've discovered over the last couple of weeks that these Corinthians, they were obsessed with the wisdom of this world. They wanted Paul to speak like the Greek philosophers, and yet Paul is defending in chapters one and two his use of the gospel in verse number two of chapter two, what does he say? He says, I refuse to preach unto you anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so ironically, how most of us have viewed this passage is we triage the gospel as milk and Paul is criticizing possibly that very same attitude in his writing. He's saying the gospel is not milk. The gospel is milk and meat. And man, some of us Christians who've been saved for a while need to recognize this, that the gospel is not a truth from which we move on. The gospel is the center. It's the core. It's the nucleus of our faith. Everything we do pivots and moves on the gospel. It's milk and meat. So maybe it means that, or maybe it means what I said originally. But regardless, what Paul is saying is that you're so spiritually mature, I had to adjust the content I was teaching to match your immaturity. Now, why would Paul say, I think it's of interest to us, because I think the possibility is if this church was unaware of their own spiritual immaturity, that it's possible that some of us might be unaware of it, right? Some of y'all are struggling to admit that. Let's be real. If the Corinthian church didn't understand they were spiritually mature, it is possible that there could be people in this room who are unaware that they themselves are spiritually mature. So it might be of interest to us to recognize what Paul is seeing in the life of this church that makes him think they're not acting their age. Well, we see it in verse number three and four. Here's the problem that made him recognize that this church is not acting their age. Look at verse three. 
he says that there is among you envying. What is envying? It's jealousy. There's quarreling or strife, bickering, so to speak. And what? Divisions, factions in the church. So Paul is looking at this church and he said, there's jealous people who are jealous of this group and this group is jealous of that group. There's quarreling, there's bickering, there's whispering going on and argumentative natures happening and clashing in this church. There's divisions, there's groups. It's not a unified church, it's a, group, it's a church that you could look at on a Sunday morning. You'd say, well, there's the Apollos group, there's the Paul group, there's the Christ group, there's the Peter group. And Paul is saying that when I see a church that's divided, that that is characterized by jealousy and quarreling, this is a church that is not mature spiritually. This is a church that is spiritually immature. And then I I think verse number four is is really a, a, a strong word. Or sorry, look at verse number three. He says, are ye not yet carnal and walk as men? What he means when he says walk as men, the idea there is, are you not carnal in thinking in a human way? He's saying, you're not thinking like somebody who's indwelt by the spirit of God. The way you approach the church, the way you approach life, the way you approach these issues going on the church, he says, you're not thinking with the spirit of God, with the wisdom of God, like we talked about last week. You are thinking of life in a human way, a human way. And so here's what Paul says. He's saying that Christians who divide over human leaders and act in human ways are not acting their age. That's his charge in verse number one through four. The rest of the passage gives us four reminders, four principles, four truths that God is going to speak to someone in here who is either not acting their age or maybe might be tempted to not act their age. Well, if we broaden the category to all of that, I think that's all of us, isn't it? This side of the room is really in tune. You've got it, all right? Don't you think that all of us are tempted to not act our age? Right side? All right, all right. You're letting the left win out. They're even on the left, and we don't... Okay, I'm not going to go there, right? Four reminders. Here's the first one. Verses five through nine, here's the first reminder to Christians who don't act their age. Paul says, remember that gospel leaders are on the same team serving the same God. And remember, the issue at hand here is this division of the church, and we've expounded on this a bit, that this division was centered over personalities, particularly maybe boiling down to the preaching style of Paul versus Apollos. And so he says that for these immature Christians, they need to remember that gospel leaders are on the same team serving the same God, which means this, that immature Christians are the type of people that divide themselves and align themselves based on their human leaders. Now, I I said this a couple weeks ago when this topic was brought up in chapter number one. I'll say this. It is natural and really in some ways good to admire a certain pastor God has used in your life. 
Nothing wrong with that. I've got some. I hope all of you've got some. If you don't, that's really unfortunate. I, I, I would, I'd feel bad for you that you've never had a pastor that you could look up to. That's not wrong. But what is ungodly, Paul's addressing here, is for churches to align themselves around different human leaders and the different styles of ministry or preaching or whatever the case may be that they represent. And that's what was happening in this church at Corinth. They're centering themselves not on God and his son, Jesus Christ, which is what we're supposed to be centered on as a church. We believe the gospel of, not Mike Collins, but of Jesus Christ at Fellowship Baptist Church. We are centered on that. But these people were dividing themselves by Apollos. The Apollos people liked certain things about Apollos. Perhaps he seemed a little more in step with the Corinthian wisdom of this world. He seemed a lot more like the Greek philosophers in his speaking. Even the book of Acts says that Apollos was very uh, well-versed and very um, educated. And so that would have come through on his preaching. Paul, maybe in some ways, was very different, right? His critics said that he was a very bad preacher in person, but he's a really good letter writer. So there was this division over the differences that these people represented, but Paul is reminding the church, listen to verses five through nine. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed. Even as the Lord, notice the centrality of God in this, even as the Lord gave, verse number five, to every man. Verse six, he says, we had different jobs, but we were serving the same master, the same boss. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And so he says, if we had different jobs that are under the authority of the same master, here's his conclusion, verse seven. So then neither is he that planteth anything. He says, I'm not anything special. Neither is neither he that watereth is anything special, but God that giveth the increase. And then I love verse number eight through nine because Paul essentially says this. Don't you dare try to pit me and Apollos against each other. And I think by implication, he's talking to some people at the church of Corinth. By the way, I'm gonna get to this a little bit. You gotta understand when he's talking about spiritual leaders in the church, there had to be some that were in the church at this time. Whether they were pastors or elders or deacons or prominent church members, there were people who were in some way influencing and leading the church even when Paul's gone. So I think subliminally he's saying something to them. He's saying, don't you dare pit me against Apollos. Look at verse eight. For now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. It's not up to you to give us commendation. Verse nine, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. That's a field. Ye are God's building. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that for a church to divide on whether they like this leader or that leader is as silly as Chiefs fans arguing whether they should like Patrick Mahomes or Travis Kelsey better. They play for the same team trying to score same, the same touchdowns for the same city in the same state to bring the championship home and have the same parade together. They're not enemies. They're coworkers. They're teammates. And I think that what Paul is saying to this, that gospel leaders are on the same team and therefore the members of a church should be on the same team. We're on the same team. Some may like this, some may like this. 
Some may have preferred it this way, some may prefer it this way, but what God reminds us is that, yes, it is okay for there to be a lot of diversity in the harvest field. Praise God for that. Hey, you know what? I want there to be more diversity in our church. Buckle up. That's what I want. I want people to have more diversity of opinions and more diversity of backgrounds. If, if we're shining the light of the gospel, that should happen. That should happen. If we're pigeonholing ourselves to a certain church culture and to a certain message and to a certain rhetoric, then we'll attract all that we put out there. But if we're just preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to attract everybody. What did Jesus say? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so this truth reminds us that sometimes churches forget what the church at Corinth forgot. We forget that we are not on different teams fighting against each other to win our preferential battle. We are playing different positions, but we're all on the same team under the authority and the leadership of the same head coach. And his name is not Mike Collins, his name is God. And if we're all thinking straight, we all set aside what I wanna do and if I wanna catch the ball on this play, and we ask the question, what's gonna create more touchdowns for the team? Because we're on the same team, serving the same God. Here's the second reminder. It reminds us that there's an evaluation, that how you and I act in the church will not be unaddressed on the day of judgment. So the second reminder in our passage in verses 10 through 15 is this. Remember, Christ will evaluate how you build his church. Christ will evaluate how you build his church. Now, the verses I'm about to read have been horribly misrepresented. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> so, so Paul said in verse 9, just to give you a little context, he says the church is God's field and God's building. So then he starts developing that illustration, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. When did Paul lay the foundation? When he planted the church. He started the church, he preached the gospel, people were saved, that's the foundation. And another buildeth thereon. But look, here's the command in verses 10 through 15. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. You might write next to that word in your Bible, me, you, Mike Collins, take heed how every man buildeth thereupon. He says, no other foundation can any man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then here's the verses that get taken out of context. If any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. And then he talks about, um, how those, those things will be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And then verse number 14 and 15 described us the dual destinies, okay? If you build with lasting materials, gold, silver, precious stones, it will survive the fire. But if you build with wood, hay, and stubble, it'll be burned up. And then verse 15 says this, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Here's what people do. They say, Christian, you need to take care how you build your life. You need to build your life with gold, silver, and precious stones, not with wood, hay, and stubble. And that's a great idea. That has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 is a written to an entire church 
And Paul is saying to this church, be careful how you build the church of God. Because it is possible for Christians and leaders and influencers in the church, by their own influence and their leadership, to either decide whether they will build their church with corruptible and flammable materials, or to build their church with stuff that will last through the fire. Now, when we hear that fire, what do we immediately think of? Hell. Hellfire, baby. Makes for a good scorcher sermon. But that's not actually what the fire is. If you look at verse, I think it's 13. This fire is associated with the day. The day shall declare it. You want to look at chapter 1, verse 8. The day is described as the day of Jesus Christ. The day shall declare it. It shall be revealed by fire. So the fire is revealing whether or not someone's work was good or it was bad, right? Verse number 13, the fire, whatever that is, is trying people's work. It's testing it. And then verse 15, the fire is saving people. What verse 15 is saying is not this, that it's possible for you as a Christian to go into heaven smelling like hellfire. You ever heard that, right? You're gonna smell like smoke because you just barely got in. No, what it's describing here is that the way you and I build this church, Jesus Christ, the trying fire, will reveal it one day. He is the judge. And Jesus will try what we're building this church with, Fellowship Baptist Church. And we have a choice as a church in so much as you and I have influence over that. It's not all in the pastor, because the truth of the matter is the pastor can't do everything or lead everything. He has accountability with the members of the church or the plurality of pastors, whatever it tends to be in a particular church. There's influence among you as members. You vote and you do different things. And, and listen, I can tell you right now, you have more influence than just your vote. I can tell you right now. I've seen that live leading a church, that this is a warning that this church thing is not something we get to engineer for ourselves, that we get to ask, what do we want at Fellowship Baptist Church? What type of church do we want to have? What type of programs do we want to have? What type of things do we want to do? No, what we have to decide is what is the stuff that when we stand before Jesus Christ will last, and what is the stuff that when we stand before Jesus Christ won't matter a single bit? You and I don't get to decide how we build this church. We we can, we can if we wanna get to that day and have everything we've done burned up and be totally worthless because we spend our time as a church focusing on things that don't matter. See, there's not a hidden meaning to gold, silver, and precious stones. The idea there. Is the same idea Jesus and and Paul are saying in some of their other teachings and writings is that there is a sort of work we can dedicate ourselves to that is eternal and heavenly. And there is a sort of work or an effort we can put ourselves to that doesn't matter in the scope of heaven. What are some things that matter in eternity? Well, I don't know. I can't think of anything more eternal than the souls of men and women. I'll just be honest, you can travel to a lot of churches and that's not what they're building. They're more focused on this program or this ministry 
And listen, ministries and programs can lead to the salvation of souls, but sometimes it's so easy to get them mixed up. That's how we have things that we call in the pastor world called sacred cows. It's programs that were originally designed to save souls that now are more about appeasing the people. I can't think of anything more eternal than reaching the lost and unchurched of our community. Man, I, I can't spell out everything that will, be, that will be judged by fire and still remain, but I can tell you right now, the souls of people, our efforts to reach people, our efforts to welcome people, to receive people, to disciple people, to teach people, to baptize people, I'm not worried about that lasting on the day of judgment. I know that when the fire, the revealing and trying fire of Jesus Christ examines our efforts to do that in so much as you and I participate in that, I am not worried one bit what he's gonna think about that. I know that there's certainly can hardly be anything more pleasing to the master than doing what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save that which is lost. What will last the fire? Teaching and discipling Christians prioritizing discipleship over entertainment. Certainly, Paul's taking pot shots because this church wanted to prioritize human wisdom and Paul's reminding them not to elevate human wisdom and speaking into the culture, but to elevate the gospel, to elevate righteousness over comfort. So many churches are building straw structures because they refuse to address sin because it might hurt somebody's feelings. And all of us want a pastor who'll preach on sin. But when sin has to be corrected one-on-one, that's where I've found it gets a little more controversial. Here's what we have to recognize, is that if we're gonna build a structure that's made of gold, silver, and precious stones, I'm not a contractor, but I'm just gonna take a wild guess that it's a lot harder to work with those materials. It takes a lot more work and a lot more time than it does to build with wood, hay, and stubble. So church, if we wanna build a church that will be pleasing to Christ in the day of judgment, it might take more work. But let's be careful. Before we try and push anything or criticize something, let's ask the question first, what type of church does Christ want us to build? Because it's immature people who think that this thing is up to our design, because it's not. Now it's a problem when someone builds a bad building. It's another level of crime when somebody vandalizes or tears down a building, right? So Paul, on this topic of of not treating Christ's church properly, he goes to the next level and he tries to remind these immature people with this reminder, verses 16 through 17, to recognize the seriousness of destroying God's temple. That's the third reminder to immature Christians. Recognize the seriousness of destroying God's temple. We, we covered this a little bit in our storyline series, but God's plan for the physical temple is done. It served its purpose. Because Jesus Christ has come, because the Holy Spirit has come, God is doing his work through a new temple, and that is the local church. I'm not making this up. It's in verse 16. Know ye not, this is plural words, that ye 
are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. What was the temple about? The temple was a place of worship, a place of teaching, a place of confession, a place where the presence of God was especially made known. The temple had immeasurable value in the kingdom of God. It was to be treated with such care and sacredness. You've maybe perused through the book of Leviticus. Hopefully you didn't get too discouraged. But you read stuff like that and you recognize that the temple matters to God and we don't mess around with the temple. We don't defile the temple. We certainly don't tear down the temple. God has placed a similar value on the local church. If you want a picture of how much God values the local church, read your Old Testament and read about the temple. That's how much God values this institution, the local church. But yet Paul seems to indicate in verse 17 that it's possible to defile and or destroy this temple. Look at verse 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So how does somebody destroy a church? Well, we just read Paul's words in Paul's context, right? What's going on here? Verse number three. Jealousy, quarreling, and factions. And Paul has some serious words, and God has some serious words for people who will either intentionally or maybe even unintentionally, because they're so focused on their agenda, destroy the church of God. There are people in this church who want to attack the gospel foundation. They want to remove the gospel and replace it with Greek wisdom. There are people who are tearing apart the church because they're so focused on winning their battle and their arguments about Apollos and Paul and all this other junk that's going on. Paul's not just randomly bringing this up. Paul, I think, is thinking of people in the chairs that are doing things that, if left unchecked, will destroy this church. And I think we all understand that Jesus promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that does not mean that any individual church is promised perennial protection. Jesus promised to build the church global. There will be individual churches that rise and fall. It is possible to destroy a church if left unchecked. And Paul says that if, if that's something that someone is doing and their actions are leading down that road, woo, serious words in verse 17, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now, there's two opinions on what that means. If you search that word, the, the word behind that, that's translated destroy, in every context that I can see, it has something to do with eternal destruction. So Paul is saying here that those who are so carnal and are so motivated by human ways and are so motivated by their own ego that they're willing to carry out actions that will literally level a church. He says, 
there is no other judgment you can render on that person that they are not actually a Christian. And they will be destroyed eternally. Or, I think it's also plausible that this is ambiguous as to what serious consequence God has for somebody who levels a church, but it's so bad, we probably shouldn't want to find out that one, right? This is a serious matter. And I think what we need to recognize, I think, number one, as a church, um, I recognize that, that the most likely thing is that the people in this room probably aren't gonna wanna destroy this church or whatever church God providentially lets you be a part of in the future. And so here's what we need to recognize, that godly Christians don't stand by and watch while that happens. Are we on the same page? I think so often, what, what I've noticed in church culture in my very limited experience is that we, we will see something from across the room or we'll see something on the horizon. We'll watch behavior and, and we've got a whole log of it. I've talked to so many people about different situations in life and it's like, you've seen all these different things and you know they're a problem and you've never said a word. And, and I think what this, this speaks to us as a church is that if, if there are people in the church who are acting like these Corinthians are, man, wouldn't it have been a better situation if Paul didn't have to write this letter and people are just taking care of business like they should have? I'm gonna say that again. Paul shouldn't have had to write this. People should have taken care of business. There should have been godly enough people. Apparently, the whole church as a whole was not very godly. But there should have been godly enough people sitting in those pews who saw what was going on to put an end to it to church discipline these people off the membership role or whatever the case would have had to be. There should have been people who took care of it. And Paul, I think, is motivating us that when we see actions like this on the horizon, if that ever happens, we don't sit around. Church is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. We, we get involved and we protect. And I think Paul's also speaking to the destroyers and he says, if your actions, if you're so focused on carrying out your will and your preference and you're dividing people, you ought to be real careful before you go down that road. You ought to be real careful. Here's the last reminder. Probably my favorite. Paul says in verses 18 through 23 to this church, reorient your thinking around a better inheritance. What does God say to immature Christians? Reorient your thinking around a better inheritance. Verses 18 through 19 really kind of capture the whole idea of the passage. And he basically says in verses 18 through 19, some of y'all don't recognize that you're this person. Verse 18, let no man deceive himself. You know what that means? That means some of you all aren't even aware and you need to be aware. <laughs> be, listen and be aware. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And then he starts quoting the Old Testament, a couple different passages. He quotes Job 5, 12, verse 20 or sorry, verse 19, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their craftiness. 
What is he saying? If you pursue the lesser inheritance of getting your way and the wisdom of this world and winning your arguments, let it be known that God has already rendered a verdict on that behavior. He says that God catches the wise in their craftiness. People don't get away with that. Verse number 20, he says, um, he quotes the Old Testament again, he says, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. This is Psalm 94, 11. And he's just saying, he's really saying to this church, and, and, and hear the heart of Paul. Hear the heart of God. He's saying that the stuff y'all are fighting about is stuff that will be burned up in judgment. That the type of people who chase after that are not people who are bought by God. The type of people who are obsessed with these things are people who are not God's children. Get away from that mess. Stop centering your life around human thinking and human ways and human rivalries. And then he pivots in verses 21 through 23, and he encourages them to reorient their thinking, not around the things of this world, not around the human leaders and the human ways and all of the stuff that we've been talking about. No, he says, reorient and set your affection on things above. Look at verse 21. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Man, you ought to really think about the end of verse 21. For all things are yours. What's up with that? Some of y'all are like, no, no, all things are truly not mine, Pastor Mike. You, I'll show you my bank account. I do not have all things. I am quite lacking. No, Paul's not a liar. He's not making stuff up. He says, all things are yours. What, is, what did Jesus say in his Sermon on the Mount? He said, blessed are the meek, speaking of those who enter the kingdom. And what does he promise them? He says that the meek, those who are in the kingdom, will inherit the earth. Paul's not making this up. He said, no, 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 you've got a better inheritance. You, you've got something far better than winning an argument. This Paul and Apollo stuff, oh, come on, leave it, leave it behind you. All things are yours. Paul and Apollos and Cephas are yours, he says in verse number 21 or 22. He says, life and death and things present and things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. What is he saying? Stop thinking and setting your affection on things below where moth and rust do corrupt. No, think about the heavenly inheritance that you have. Oh friend, Christians that are really focused on their better inheritance, they don't, they don't mess around with the piddly stuff in church life. They don't get all worked up about the little stuff in church life. No, they don't, get, they don't get into jealousy. They don't need to envy this Christian who gets a little more attention or this Christian who gets a little more opportunities as Paul's gonna address in chapters 12 through 14. You know why? They don't need an ego trip. They don't need a pat on the back. They've got crowns in heaven. Why would they ever need that? They've got a better inheritance. They don't need to win an argument. They are inheritors of the earth. Paul says, reorient your thinking around a better inheritance. And when we recognize we are joint heirs with Christ, we will not catch ourselves up with silly debates and silly arguments and silly factions and silly preferences. I love what C.S. Lewis said. 
might be the, one of the more powerful quotes I've ever read. C.S. Lewis said this, that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We have something so much better. This is why, church, we observe communion regularly. Because the act of the Lord's Supper, the picture of the Lord's Supper, it is designed to reorient our thinking around a better inheritance. Because here's what I know. The sin you struggle with is directly connected to trying to get a cheap inheritance quicker. It's much like that prodigal son who cashed in on his inheritance early, thinking it would be a lot better. But as Christians, we have to be reminded because we live in a world that's fallen and we're surrounded by a lesser inheritance. And so we can get really attached to this lesser inheritance. We can get really attached to the possessions and the cars and the houses and, and all the stuff that goes on on our 70 or maybe more years on this planet. We need moments where our attention is directed to that better inheritance that awaits for us. Christian, as we celebrate communion tonight, let's really think about that better inheritance. Let's really embrace this promise in chapter three, in verses 21 through 23, that all things are yours. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, all are yours. Oh, that little cracker. It's just a picture of the better inheritance. As I said this morning, it's really an olive leaf that points us to the fact that one day we will be eating off the olive tree. And let's remember that we have this better inheritance not because of anything we brought to the table, because of whose we are. We are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Wow, what a truth. What a truth. All of God's children need the reminder to act their age. So I, I would imagine you do too. And here's the reminder. We need to remember that gospel leaders are on the same team serving the same God. We need to remember that Christ will evaluate how you build his church. We need to recognize the seriousness of destroying God's temple and you and I need to reorient our thinking around a better inheritance. Let's do that tonight as we observe the Lord's Supper. I'm gonna ask our, our two deacons, Rick,